Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and we have two guests for you on today's show. First, Dan Churchwell, Associate Director of Program Outreach here at Acton, will discuss sustainable farming and growing technology, the second installment of our newest Tech in the Future of Work series. To give us a full picture of the dramatic changes in agriculture that have taken place as a result of technology, Kevin Scott, a farmer from Valley Springs, South Dakota, joins Dan. Then, on Upstream, Bruce Walker discusses a new dystopian novel, The Rending and the Nest, with author Kata Schwein. So, without further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome back to our series on the Acton podcast called Technology and the Future of Work. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I serve as the Associate Director of Program Outreach for the Acton Institute. It's our desire that through interviews with experts and practitioners alike, this series will delve into some of the most fundamental questions that technology is bringing to the forefront of our everyday lives. For our next two episodes, We'll be turning to the subject of technology and agriculture, and it's my pleasure to welcome Kevin Scott to the podcast. Kevin is a farmer from Valley Springs, South Dakota. He's also the secretary of the American Soybean Association and has been on the ASA Board of Directors since 2012. He serves on the ASA's Trade, Policy, and International Affairs Committee and on the United States Soybean Export Council Board of Directors. He also serves as a member of the ASA's Biotech Working Group and as a member of the Ag Rail Business Council. He has served as president and a member of the South Dakota Soybean Association and still engages national policy issues and provides uh, all kinds of support to the state of South Dakota. Scott and his uh, wife, they farm in southeast South Dakota, right outside of Sioux Falls in Valley Springs. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you. That guy sounds busy. (laughs) (laughs) He does. So tell me a little bit, Kevin. um, I I just listed all of your kind of, quote-unquote, professional, um, you know, engagements. But at at the heart, you seem like, you know, we've met several times, and and you're a farmer. I mean, you love the land. Tell us a little bit about your history with farming um, there in South Dakota. Well, it, uh, I guess it starts... Uh, back in 1886 when uh, my great-grandfather and his wife moved uh, uh, from Iowa and bought uh, the location that we're currently at. Um, and he, uh, he bought it from a, um, a land uh, service uh, group uh, that financed land. Um, actually, they took it over from the, uh, the homesteader that came out here and couldn't make a go of it even with the free land. And, uh, and when my great-grandfather came up, it was, uh, it was sold for $11 an acre. And uh, we were real happy that he stopped where he did. There's, uh, uh, there is uh, uh, rock and things that are a little farther west in the, in the state and drier climate. And so our, our farm is butts up right against uh, Minnesota. And so I can uh, stand out on my back porch and see God's country from where I'm at. But uh, it, uh, we were real happy that he stopped where he did. Like I say, he paid $11 an acre for it. Um, uh, President Grant signed the papers uh, in the transfer, and, and it was a, it was um, kind of neat thing. And it, so it's been in the family a long time, and uh, uh, the value of that land has uh, gone up 
considerably, and uh, we're we're uh, pretty fortunate to be where we're at. So tell me a little bit about what what are the main crops that you raise or are, are raised in that area? Uh, right now in this area, corn and soybeans is a typical rotation. So uh, one year we'll plant corn, and the next year we'll we'll uh, rotate that to a soybean acreage. There's also some alfalfa, um, very little wheat, uh, very little small grains produced here. The economics are just better with the corn and the soybean rotation. So that's uh, typically what we're growing. Gotcha. So. So, I mean, if, if I do my math right, you know, a little over 130 years and about four generations, you know, you know, your family's been on the farm there. Um, the statistics are generally, you know, in 1900, uh, you know, almost over 40% of the labor force was involved in farming and agriculture at the turn of the, the 19th century. Um, and there were 57, uh, 5.7 million farms yeah, and by yeah. 1998, I think that's the, the most recent numbers I could find. Um, there are only 2.15 million farms, right? And, and, and you so, know, and that <clears throat> that has been the trend uh, over the years. And but if you would if you would think back to that that time frame, 1900 uh, area, uh, the the power source on the farms was horses and or or humans, and uh, you. You could not cultivate a large area uh, without having a huge uh, pile of uh, either human resource or animal resource, and uh, it took um, it took a lot of farmers uh, producing uh, as much as they could, and then of course feeding livestock um, with some of their produce um, and feeding their own families and their labor source. It, it took a, uh, it took all their time and labor to feed just themselves and, and very few other people. And so uh, nowadays, um, the, the drastic change in our um, power sources, of course, um, and our and our drastic change in the way we uh, produce crops, the um, the ability to uh, do a lot less work and produce a lot more product. So our sustainability has has improved greatly. But therefore, the need for all the labor and uh, uh, multitudes of farms on 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 the acres has has decreased. So it's just a, uh, I think, a natural progression. Um, it's it's not the, um, uh, you know, it's not what you would think of as as agriculture in the, from the 50s or 40s. You know the. The, uh, the just the idyllic um, idyllic uh, view of farming as it was. Uh, quite frankly, we worked ourselves to death in those days. So you look at the net loss of 3.6 million farms in a century, but the average acreage tripled or yeah tripled um, over that same time. And so mm-hmm. you already alluded a little bit to that that workload. I mean. Uh, According to the Global Market Insights Incorporated, the market for ag drones and related technology will be valued at over a, a billion dollars by 2024. When just a couple of years ago, I think it was they were saying 75 million, and so in, in less than eight years, it's going to go to uh, you know a tenfold increase to a billion dollars of of ag dollars spent on drone and related technology. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Have you, have you embraced that or where, where do you see that technology piece growing in, in your neck of the woods? Yeah. Um, agriculture is, uh, embracing tech 
in a in a huge way. Um, our, the data that we use uh, is currently uh, going down uh, nearly to the the square foot of of real estate. If we are if we are farming uh, a piece of ground and we don't have the the enough enough data, we go out and we probe it until we have enough data to make changes on those specific acres that will affect uh, either yields or sustainability or uh, utilization of our nutrients or water any just the the data collection right now is phenomenal in ag and uh, so and tell us how that's collected what 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 ways do you collect it from the tractors the implements from the drones etc yeah all all aspects every time we're on the field we're gathering data or producing a, a repeatable uh, a repeatable pass or we're collecting data on the weather we're collecting uh, data on soil types and we have we have sensors now in our in our corn planters that can adjust the fertilizer we're putting on the ground as we're planting our corn or our crop it, they will sense what the the nutrient needs are as we're passing across them and and the adjustments will be made so that uh, the fertilizer can be either more can be added on the seed row uh, or less and so we don't want to put more fertilizer on than we need and so uh, it used to be that we would we would determine we would take probes in all of our fields and we'd add all those to one bucket get them analyzed and you had one setting for the whole field, and uh, now we we do that based on two and a half acre grids. So every uh, every four years we sample that two and a half acre grid to see that if we've been putting on the right amount of nutrients uh, over the years, and if we're building the the profile where we need it to uh, maximize our return, and but not overbuilding, so that uh, we have a runoff potential or um, a leaching of our nutrients through the through into the groundwater. So uh, it it really doesn't pay us to put it put out more than we can use than the crop can use. So uh, it's uh, any so these number are essentially of ways. economic so, decisions. I mean, there, obviously there's environmental decisions. It's, it's good yeah. for the environment to not over fertilize. And we, we understand that, but it, it, you want to maximize profits of course. And, and, and so you don't want to spend more than you need to in the fertilizer and the other types of things going on the, on the plants. Correct. Absolutely. And uh, it, it does us no good. Uh, we, I keep bringing up the word sustainable, and uh, it has become kind of our buzzword uh, uh, in the in the ag industry. And sustainability is not just uh, uh, ecological sustainability, although that's an important component. But there is also uh, a social issue as far as how much time are we taking on 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 this property? Uh, do we have time to spend with family or in community or doing? Uh, uh, any any number of things that uh, improve our our human quality of life, and then it all has to be uh, economical. If if uh, there are great things you can do to soil to uh, to be uh, more sustainable ecologically, but they don't pay financially, and if they don't pay financially, we as farmers can't afford to do them. And so uh, all those things have to work together, and it's it's. Uh, I've been doing it for 37 years, and I'm finding certain things that I know are good uh, and sustainable. Uh, we re- repeat those, and we try to make uh, make good financial decisions based off of uh, uh, what is good for the ecology, what's good for uh, uh, being a good neighbor. You know, do I need to plant pollinators for uh, for bees? Do I need or for or butterflies? Or you know, it, it just any number of things, and we continue to learn what that 
sustainability really means uh, as we farm. Does the da- and the data then will help you do that, right? Well, data is critical uh, to those those decisions. If we're making decisions based on what it looks like um, now. <laughs> So, so we now have satellite photos that we can do. Uh, there's a satellite that pa- passes over our ground every day, and uh, it will take a picture every day of that field if, the, if it's not cloudy or whatever. Uh, and, and you can get that back here on your home computer and look at it, and you can say, well, is the drought affecting a, a, a particular part of the field, or is it too wet in a particular, or is there a, a bug or a weed problem? And the satellite imagery is getting so good that uh, we can tell that from uh, however many miles up that is. And, and we can real-time make changes. We can go out and see if we have stress in a field. We can walk directly to that spot and, and look at it and determine what that problem is. Uh, in the past, we, we did not have that available. We would, we would look at a field, uh, you might walk halfway in, and if everything looked good, uh, you'd turn around and come back. But this way, you can uh, specifically find that spot that might have an issue and go out and address it. And So that's where, where data has uh, really improved. Uh, you talked about drones, and I, I've had a drone for a couple of years and use it for that particular purpose, uh, identifying problem areas in the field. And, and also, I just enjoy it. I mean, it's fun, you know, and that's the, that's the problem I have. It's, uh, uh, it's too much fun to go out and, and do that sort of stuff, but I'm a techie kind of guy. And, uh, but it's, we, we, we plant with technology, uh, GPS guidance of our equipment um, so that we can plant all night if, without real stress. And our, our cabs are, are uh, climate-controlled and, and comfortable like you would want your office to be and because uh, that's where we spend most of our time in the spring and and so we can comfortably plant our crops at night because the the satellites are driving us in a straight line and and that's not something that we used to be able to do and so our efficiencies uh are and and data uh that we gather throughout the year is kind of driving the fact that there are fewer and fewer farmers we do have to cover more ground uh to keep our production where it needs to be and we're going to address uh, some of that in the the second part uh what Mm -hmm. i I want to cue in real quick before we close for this part of the episode is you've mentioned the word or phrase real time multiple times you know whether the implement can sense the ground in real time the satellites are you know giving you 24 hour um coverage the uh, drones what what uh every industry seems to have a trade show i assume there's an ag trade show what um, what tech advances, we only have a few minutes here, but what, what tech advances are on the horizon that maybe you're seeing at uh, these ag shows? Well, um, so we just finished um, ASA and the, the corn growers and uh, wheat people and the sorghum people have just finished uh, a week-long event in California that is Commodity Classic, we call it. And uh, we have a huge trade show where uh, oh, 8,000 people show up and we uh, show them the latest things that are going on in the industry. And uh, just a, a case in point, I have a, a first cousin that showed up, this, uh, and they also farm. And this was the first time they had been um, uh, been to the event. And they they said almost all of it was technology-based. And he said, I haven't been in an event like this for a few years. And he says, it's just phenomenal how far behind he is 
in the data part of it and uh, the technology part of it. He said most all of these booths have something to deal with technology, whether it be um, uh, soil. He he bought a, a, a system that you screw into the soil and it uh, determines uh, how much moisture is in that soil, and, and then it, it will it will be in contact with your computer and then run your uh, irrigation system, if you have one, uh, to cover that acre correctly with the, the appropriate amount of rain or, or water and not overdo it. But the sensor's in the soil, so real-time data again. And uh, uh, we, uh, we have a new program now that um, will give us there are certain products that we spray on our on our our, chem, our crops that need uh, to be sprayed at a specific time, uh, either wind speed or direction, or or the chance of an inversion, a, chem, uh, a, a temperature inversion, which could ten- potentially carry that that spray into other fields. And so we have programs now that will determine and give us an, uh, an idea of whether we're going to have a temperature inversion in the next day or two based on uh, weather forecasts and so forth. And it brings it down real time again and uh, gives us better management decisions. Uh, we we, we want to make fewer mistakes. That's back and, to the uh, being a good neighbor, right? You said I mean, absolutely. That, that, that overspray yep. or can kill other plants and things. And so absolutely. Yep. And uh, we, we just can't afford, <laughs> we can't afford to do that. So, um, um, Anyway, there, technology is, is booming, and, and if you are out of it for a, a year, and it, like you know, your, your cell phone will change uh, every six months, you know, and so uh, those are things that a consumer could, could look at and say, yeah, I understand the changes in a cell phone or, uh, or, a, or a laptop computer. If you don't have a new one, you're, you're behind, you know, and so that's the same in ag. It's move, moving very fast. Well, well, Kevin, I appreciate your, your time today. Um... I'm looking forward to the second episode because we're going to get into a few other of these questions. And today was kind of domestic in what, what you see on the ground in your area. But I think for the second part, let's uh, let's look a little bit at some of the what you're seeing in the foreign markets, in some of your travels um, with the uh, Soybean Association. And uh, I, I really look forward to interviewing you for the second part. So thanks again for joining us on technology and the future of work at the Acton Podcast. Thanks, Dan. Communism took power in Cuba through deceit and intrigue in 1959. While Fidel Castro denied he was a communist, promising to restore democracy in the island, he began consolidating totalitarian rule and exporting revolution in Latin America and Africa. U.S.-Cuba policy would undergo dramatic changes between 1959 and the present, with consequences for the entire hemisphere. Join us on April 17 at Acton Institute to hear John Suarez, the program officer of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Free Cuba, on communism in Cuba and U.S.-Cuba policy. You can register for this event at acton.org events. Hello, and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're going to be talking to Kata Schwain, who is the author of the new novel, her very first novel, The Rending and the Nest, and this is published by Bloomsbury, and um, it has some uh, Bloomsbury elements to it, uh, if you're familiar with E.M. Forster. It's a dystopian novel that uh, kind of fits in with uh, our dystopian obsessions 
uh, such as Station Eleven and The Walking Dead and what have you. No zombies in this one, though, uh, fortunately. And uh, hello, Kata. How are you today? Hi, I'm well, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Well, I, I'm so glad that you took the time to uh, to speak with us. I'm going to uh, give a little bit of your background here, if you don't mind. You hold MFAs from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and the University of Montana. You've been the recipient of an Academy of American Poets Prize, a Minnesota Arts Board grant, and a Loft Mentor Series Award. And you teach at St. Olaf College, and you live in Northfield, Minnesota, and I thought the only thing that that town was noted for was uh, the James Gang. <laughs> well, right, and the Golden, I mean, it's not the same St. Olaf, but lots of people know St. Olaf from Golden Girls references, too, of course. I'm not familiar with the series that much. Oh, with Betty White, okay. <laughs> okay, I, and, and B. Arthur, I, yeah, I get that. But, well, let's talk about your, your, your novel. It's um, It's getting very positive reviews, and it's it's set in uh, a near future, and there is a near apocalypse that wipes out 95% of the Earth's population, or at least the population somewhere in Minnesota where the story is set. So uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about it. Um, yeah, well, so there's been uh, this apocalyptic event that the characters refer to as the rending, and the story takes place about three years after that event has occurred. And by that time, the characters in the novel have kind of organized themselves into communities of various sorts. Um, and so when the, when the novel opens, Mira, the protagonist, is talking to her friend Lana, and Lana announces that she's pregnant. And this is the first known pregnancy since the rending occurred. And so they're quite excited about it. Uh, but things don't quite go as planned. Um, and and the novel goes... I don't know how much you want me to... Well, it's whatever you feel comfortable. Right it's now. whatever you feel comfortable with. I, I have no problem with spoilers well, if if the the individual who actually wrote the novel is willing to divulge <laughs> them to to a large well, extent. I, There's a lot of it that comes out in in the reviews that are out there already, anyway. So uh, I I think I'll jump ahead of you here and say that uh, uh, when one anticipates uh, gestation and delivery, one anticipates a baby. But in mm-hmm. the instance of the the women in this novel. What actually happens is they uh, give birth to talismans from their past. Well, to inanimate objects, yes. 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 Um, And um, a large part of the novel is them not understanding quite what that means um, or how to make sense of it, yes. Um, And... Once that starts happening, there's also someone um, who arrives from a different community. Uh, his name's Michael, and he collects stories from people and lures Lana away. And she promises to return, and she doesn't return. And so Mira, the protagonist, sets off um, eight months pregnant to try and find and save her friend. And so, yeah. And and in so doing, she... she... She violates the, the the rules of the the community, uh, and the name of the community that uh, she has established with her friends is called Zion, and uh, it's kind of a, a an example of spontaneous order in the middle of this post apocalyptic society where uh, you have individuals who just adopt different roles and functions within the, that group. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And, and one of the rules that she violates is that uh, if someone leaves, you you don't follow them. You don't go looking for them. Right, right. And she is um, – so Mira gets a couple other people who are willing to um, go and search for her in spite of that. But, yes, she has definitely broken a rule. <laughs> right. And, 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 and one of the, the uh, – Interesting aspects of the book, which is which is the reason why um, I, I thought it would be good for our listeners to to learn about your novel, is that uh, Mira is an individual who is somewhat running from her past before the apocalypse. Uh, she's not allowing people to know that she was the daughter of a minister, and uh, she in her internal dialogue constantly reflects that that history, but uh, she mask it in front of everybody else. Yeah. And, and for me, um, an interesting part about writing it was thinking about, she sort of excises this piece from, from who she is after the rending occurs. But as more and more inexplicable things happen, she starts to draw more and more on um, ideas of ritual, on ideas of community, um, as a way of making sense of what's going on. Um, so I think I was really interested in the question of what aspects of, of religion keep us in community, what aspects of religion might we circle around um, after something as traumatic as the apocalypse has occurred. Um, and. I actually spent uh, a year living in a remote Christian community in Washington State, um, just 70 people. It's called Holden Village. And um, I spent a year there when I was around Mira's age. And that is definitely a community that has its own rules, um, that uh, it's only accessible by boat. Um, And while I was living up there, 9-11 occurred. And we didn't have any phones or television reception. And so I think that the um, not only is Mira's experience as a pastor's kid in there, but I think my own experience of what it means to live in intentional community. And a lot of the community meetings actually in the book are, are loosely, <laughs> loosely modeled off of um, community meetings that I experienced. Of course, we weren't talking about the end of the world, but, um, <laughs> but the sort of pattern of, of how they discuss things. Um, so, so yeah, I think I was drawing on my own religious roots and questions in a couple different ways. Right. And, uh, I, I was going to say, heaven help you if there actually was a, a character such as, uh, Talia there who sound, seemed, <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, it, it, it's one of, one of the oh, most, be- one of the most believably annoying characters ever put to page. <laughs> I'm so glad you thought so, Bruce. <laughs> that, that delights me to no end. That's wonderful. She is really annoying, yes. When I was reading the, the novel, and, and I, just, I just finally finished it last evening, uh, from, from, from the get-go, I, I thought there was a heavy uh, preponderance of anthropological thought here. You have individuals who are digging through their personal history. They're mm-hmm. digging through the piles that uh, exist outside of their communities where they go and extract the things that they need. They go out with a list and say, okay, I need some PVC tubing. I need this. I need that. And they'll, or we'll need something for the, uh, for 
the gestating babies that are are coming due. And uh, then there's the the whole uh, religious aspect. So I, I, I thought that all of that was really quite fascinating. In, in, do you have a background in anthropology other than uh, what you have explicitly told us thus far? No, I don't have a background in anthropology, though um, I think as a writer, you're just naturally very interested in lots of other, lots of subjects. Um, the book that I actually teach a lot is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Have you ever read that one? Yes, I've read it, yes. Yeah, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And um, there's a there's a lot in that book about our development, you know, as moral and ethical creatures. And so I think on my mind a little bit was questions about how we form communities and with with political systems sort of washed away because 95% of the population is gone how do we organize ourselves and how do you how do you keep people within a community and how do you set up systems of punishment and how do you um keep people loyal or interested in staying in a certain place um and so there's three different communities in the book, and they're each kind of structured differently and around different visions of community to what one might call lesser, greater success. Um, mm-hmm. but, but so I think um, at a sort of moral anthropological level, if that exists, I think I, I am very much interested in that. Um, the piles themselves draw a little bit when I was living in this community, Holden Village, was built on an old copper mine and then bought by the Lutheran church. And there were these, there still are huge piles of mine tailings, like hundreds of feet high. And as a kid, I would, and you can climb up to the top of them. And there used to be a lot of the detritus left over from the mining days up there. So um, you could kind of walk amongst these objects. And so the piles were made of the mine tailings, but there were there were some objects scattered up there. So I'm sure that there was a little bit of that going on for me when I was dreaming up the piles. Well, there's a, a, a obviously the novel being set in the future is has science fiction elements and then it has the 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 element of the in, the, the burdening of the inanimate objects. And when did you determine to marry those two those two topics together? <laughs> That's such a great question. I I never would have pictured myself as someone who was going to write a sci-fi or fantasy or dystopian or speculative novel. Um, but I sort of started following these images and these characters, and when. Lana gives birth to an inanimate object that was just as much a surprise to me as it was to her. Um, and I thought, oh no, what am I going to do with this, you know? And I do think that it was probably useful for me as a writer to be in the same place as the characters, um, not quite understanding what things meant and and following and moving forward and, and trying to figure that out. Um, so there there wasn't a lot of premeditated planning about the book. Um, things just kind of literally emerged, <laughs> and I kept well, writing. 
Well, as I, as I started to say at, at the very beginning of our conversation here, it was that uh, it, it's remarkable to me that uh, your book is published by Bloomsbury and one of the most prominent Bloomsbury group writers was E.M. Forster. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm reading through this and there's a lot of things that are left unexplained. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing. And I, do, I don't want to take away any of the mystery because there are, there are a lot of mysteries that are explained at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the, the, the greatest parts of uh, Forrester's passage to India was the, the, the sound inside the cave that uh, cannot be defined by Western ears. Mm. And it, it drives this one woman to near madness in, in the book. And so the unexplained elements of your book reminded me of that, but also the, the, the denouement of, of your book, and I'm not giving anything away because it, most things lead up to that is from Howard's End, the, the, the phrase only connect. And I, I don't know if you had any of that in mind when, when you were writing the novel or not, but it certainly comes out that there's a, there's a, a, a particular literary humanism that permeates uh-huh. the novel. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yes, connection, connection and community for sure. And also, um, you know, I think we deal all the time in our lives with trying to make sense out of things that are inexplicable. Um, that sometimes terrible things happen and, um, we're, we're left to make a narrative out of that as a way of understanding and people craft very different narratives, right. Around trauma and grief, um, and how they talk about it, those things in relationship to religion a lot of times. And, um, so I think what was really interesting to me was to take something that I think is a common human experience, but when you put it into this dystopian post-apocalyptic landscape of this completely bizarre thing happening, right? The women giving birth to objects, um, it lets us be able to consider um, on a maybe less dramatic scale how we make sense of those things ourselves. And when I got done writing the book, I... I realized that um, I, a couple dear, dear friends had gone through a series of um, miscarriages and stillbirths while I was writing, and, um, and, and that was one of those deeply inexplicable things that they were trying to figure out how to make meaning out of. Um, and, and, and I think culturally, sometimes that kind of grief gets compounded because we don't have good rituals around those kinds of loss. Um, so yeah, so I love that. I love that wind, the wind in the cave, and the the trying, the trying to hear. Yeah. I'm speaking with Kata Schwein whose debut novel, The Rending in the Nest, has just been released by Bloomsbury Publishing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. Well, you're very welcome. And for this week's Upstream, I'm Bruce Edward Walker. I'll be speaking to you again next week. And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. 
Also, if you'd like to contact our podcast team or if you have questions for the Acton Institute that you would like to hear answered in future segments of the podcast, you can always leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.